You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Family, good morning. So good to see you this morning. If it's your first time, welcome. So glad to have you here. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors, and on behalf of all of us, Welcome. Thanks for joining us for worship. If you're joining us digitally, thank you so much for joining in that way to worship with us this morning. Um, you know, I got to be honest, uh, I am envious of some of you. I am a little jealous because you can function without much sleep, and I cannot. I can't. You might be able to get five or six hours and be okay. I can get five or six hours, and I'm not okay. In fact, I'm not okay until I get that next two or three or four hours. And I am at peace with that. Jesus did not make me a five or six hour person. He'd made me a more than that person. And, and listen, it's not just that I like sleep. I need that much sleep. It's the factory preset. And one way or another, I'm going to get it. And so, you know, if we sit down for a late night conversation on my couch, don't be offended. Because you're gonna put me to sleep. Anyone would put me to sleep. I tell my wife, I'll never go to bed angry, I'll just go to bed. I just, I can't stay awake. Last night, I had a conversation with someone at our house and I just fell asleep right in the middle of it. Company over, didn't matter, right? That's my hardware. My body says time to shut down, just boop, 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 right? I'm done. You know, part of being human is that there are desires that we have and we can't help but have them. There are cravings, there are needs that are baked into us and they're just core to our humanity. You will crave sleep. You will crave food. So will I. There's no way around it. This morning, what I want you to consider is that there are other desires, cravings that are, in a sense, baked into us. But they're less obvious. They're they're more subtle, and yet they are core to our existence And whether we realize it or not, we will pursue these things. And today's passage speaks to two of them, security and significance. Security and significance. As a human being, I have this craving. It's a need to know, okay, am I going to be safe? Are things going to be okay? And do I matter? Am I involved in something that's significant? Am I doing things that will last and that will outlast me? And and family, whether you realize it or not, it's just your operating system. It's in your subconscious. As you're going through the day, you're looking for security. You're looking for significance. And God knows that because he created you. He gave you the factory presets. That's the software that you come with. And so our issue is this. We are going to seek security and significance. That's just who we are as humans. Where do we get them? Where do we get them? And and I think that gets to the crux of our passage today as we look at the Tower of Babel. 
that, that whether we know it or not, we're going to seek security, we're going to seek significance, and there's a Babel way of doing that. There's a God way of doing that. There's our way. There's God's way. And so the question I have to ask myself is, which way am I going to choose? Because God's way is going to be counterintuitive. Our way will seem right in our own eyes, and yet our way is never going to last. It's never going to bring lasting security and significance, and only God's way is. So today, as we wrap up Genesis 1 through 11, those are the options, is how are we going to pursue these things? Because one way or the other, we're going to pursue them. So today, as I said, we're going to wrap up Genesis 1 through 11. We've had this series, let's start at the beginning, and today we reach the end of the beginning of the biblical story. Genesis 1 through 11 is God's framework for understanding the big story of Scripture. And in Genesis 1 through 11, we see the the seeds that sort of grow into the tree that is the Bible. The foundational ideas are all here. Who is God? Who are humans? What's our identity? What's our purpose? What is marriage? What is work? What is human society? What's wrong with the world? What is sin? Why is sin so bad? Why does civilization exist? And today we see the birth of nations. God's heart for the nations, the problem with the nations. And really, we see in the story of Babel how humanity attempts to create a civilization of security and significance apart from God. And because of sin, this is all of our bent to do that. And so we have to ask that question. How are we going to seek it? That's Genesis 1 through 11. We're wrapping up. I got three chapters. I'm going to bleed into Abraham 2, which is Genesis 12. I cheated a little bit. I can't help myself. You got to get to that point in the story because it's significant. So give me a break, okay? Um, Next week, by the way, we're going to start a brand new series and jump all the way across the Bible, not to Revelation, but to the New Testament book of James. And uh, just as God's been leading me as I've been praying about what to study next, I feel like James is a great book on putting hands and feet to our Christianity, to our convictions. What does it mean to live wisely, to live justly? A lot of the questions we grapple with in modern society, James is actually speaking to and addressing. So I'm excited about that. That's next week. This week is Babel. Our way to get security and significance, God's way to get security, and significance. Now, before we look at Babel, we need to look at Genesis 10, which gives us the background information we need to understand Babel. And in Genesis 10, verse 1, we read this. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Last week, we saw Noah, this new world that he inhabits, He has three sons, and now we learn about the genealogies, the offspring of these three sons. Scholars refer to this chapter as the table of nations, and it's not meant to be an exhaustive list of every nation in the world, but it's a list of those nations and peoples that Israel encountered, that they would be familiar with, who they interacted with, and how those nations came to be. In verses 2 through 5, we get this account of Israel's distant neighbors, and those are the descendants of Japheth. And you see these Mediterranean island countries, countries to the far north. And so in the mind of an ancient Israelite, these peoples would have been the remote descendants in the farthest parts of the world. And then we move to the descendants of Ham. And these are people in North Africa, in the land of Canaan, which will be Israel. 
And these are Israel's near neighbors, and many of these will become their enemies and foes in the future. And finally, at the end of chapter 10, we get to the descendants of Shem. Last week, we saw that God was going to work through Shem's line, that this is the chosen line God is working through, who through, through whom he's going to bring redemption. And ultimately, Israel, the people of Israel, will come from that line, and so God saves it for last. Now, I've said this already in our study of Genesis. Whenever we get to a genealogy, I know your temptation. Time to fall asleep. And maybe you say, I can't help it, Jeff. That's just my pre-settings, right? I hear a genealogy, I go to sleep. Our eyes glaze over, and it's very important for us to fight that instinct because we have to understand how significant each of these genealogies is to the story. This table of nations is unique. In fact, the Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna says that this list of nations is, quote, unparalleled in the ancient world. This is the only list like this. Now, why is that so significant? Here's why. This list affirms the absolute unity of humanity. That humanity is branching out from one common family. So there is diversity in culture, language, ethnicity, and yet humanity has a common origin, a common human family. And that means that even Israel's mortal enemies are part of their family. They're relatives. And maybe you say, Jeff, I know what it's like to have enemies that are relatives. I can relate to Israel. But but here's the point. In Genesis 10, you have this hint of God's heart for the peoples of the world. Remember, this is Israel's origin story. That is the book of Genesis. And yet, at the beginning of the story, we don't hear just about the greatness of Israel, but about God's love and concern for all of these people stemming from a common human family. And that's very different than origin stories in the rest of the ancient world because often you'll hear these origin stories in other ancient cultures and their origin story goes like this. In the beginning, there was us and we were great. Not only were we great, we were sort of the best humans. We were the the archetype of humanity. And then there were these other nations and they were subhuman. That's not how Israel's story begins. In fact, it begins with a common humanity which reflects God's creative intention, which is from the beginning, to bless humanity. To fill the earth with human beings that form distinct cultures and yet cultures that honor him. That's why this is so important for us to grasp. God's concern for the nations. He says in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Remember what he said last week, Genesis 9, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's purpose has always been to fill the earth with diverse cultures who are yet unified in their allegiance to him and that share a common blood. Now, we'll return to that point later, but but that's what Genesis 10 tells us. Now, what it doesn't tell us is how humans reacted to God's mandate to spread out. How humans reacted to this command to go fill the earth. We read that humans do it, but we don't know what they thought about God's command, and yet we see ominous signs that they weren't that cooperative with God's command to spread out. Verse 25, we read to Eber, a descendant of Shem. That's where the Hebrews come from, Eber, Hebrew. 
uh, were two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So you've got these descendants. You've got one named Peleg. Peleg means division. And he says here, in those days the earth was divided. And that is a hint that the people of the world were not really on board with God's plan for everyone to spread out and create cultures. And that is the background to the story of Babel. God commissions humanity to go. At Babel, humanity responds and says, no. No. Babel is a city of rebellion. In fact, Babel in the Bible is sort of the archetype of civilization in rebellion against God. Babel becomes known as Babylon later. And in the Bible, what is Babylon? Babylon is the city of man set in opposition against God. This is a city founded on rebellion. It's the archetype of rebellion. In fact, we get a hint of that, that it will be a rebellious city earlier in Genesis 10. We read that Babel was founded by a guy named Nimrod, And we don't know who Nimrod was. It might have been Sargon I, the Akkadian king. We're not totally sure. But the name Nimrod means we shall rebel. (laughs) We shall rebel, which is the most punk rock name in all of Scripture. We shall rebel. That's Nimrod. And if you look at the cities that Nimrod founds, Babel, Nineveh in Assyria, these are known throughout the ancient world as anti-God civilizations. That's the background of Babel. And so when we get to Genesis 11, and now we hear humanity's response to God's command to go, we have this frame. Babel is the archetype of rebellion. It's the archetype of humans saying, I want security and I want significance, not on God's terms, but on mine. And that's what we see in the passage. First, let's look at security and how they cling to security. Genesis 11, we read this. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, And let us make a name for ourselves, lest, what? We be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, at face value, this sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Sounds kind of great. I mean, you've got one language, one city, one culture, one people. Ostensibly, everyone's holding hands. We are the world. I just imagine them. I'm probably dating myself with that reference, but unity. That's what we want. Unity, right? Here's the problem. It's unity in opposition to God. That's Babel. Humans saying, you know, we can all agree on, we don't want to obey that guy. Let's team up. Because what did God say in Genesis 9-1? Go, fill the world at Babel. What does humanity say? No. We are not going to go and fill the earth with cultures, we are going to build a monoculture, we are going to consolidate resources and protect ourselves. That's Babel. Because think about it, God's commission to humanity is scary. It's scary. Go into the world. Go to unknown places. 
Fill it with new cultures. Populate it with new peoples. That's vulnerable. That's risky. It's easier to stay, to consolidate power and resources and disobey God. And they know God wants this, right? Because they say, we're going to do this lest we be what? Dispersed. Now, we're going to see in a moment that any security we seek apart from God is false security. It's not going to last. But see, Babel is a picture of humanity in rebellion against God, seeking, humanity on, seeking security on its own terms. And the irony is this. What humanity fears comes upon them anyway. <laughs> they don't want to scatter, so they stay. And as we'll see, God scatters them. We'll see in a moment how he does it. But this is human grasping at security. It's a false security. We get a contrast, though, in Genesis 11 and 12, and we see God's way of giving us security. That God has a way of bringing blessing to the nations of the world and a way of keeping his people safe. Now, he does it through the line of Shem, and he does it specifically through this man named Abram who will become Abraham. And listen to what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go. Sound familiar? <laughs> go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abraham says, yes. Takes him a while. <laughs> but he says, yes. And God, what does he call Abraham to do? Leave security? Leave your culture? Leave everything you're familiar with. Leave Ur, which was an empire that you are living in, to come live on my terms. Basically, Abraham, this culture, the city of man that you live in is crumbling. It's not going to last. You need to live for my purposes. Come with me. And Abraham says, yes, he has no idea where he's going, but what does he trust? That God can give him a future that is certain. That God can give him an inheritance that's guaranteed. That God can give him a city that will not fade. And you say, Jeff, how do I know that's all here? Because writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11. What does it say? By faith, he, that's Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. What was he looking forward to? What was his faith in? To the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See how counterintuitive God's will for us is. It's not, doesn't seem safe. Follow me, walk in obedience to me, and I will give you a sure future and a hope. I will establish you. And Abraham says, okay. He lives as a foreigner. He lives as a sojourner. Who's safe in the end? Abraham, living in obedience to God. Who's not safe? People trusting in their own sense of security. Do you see the difference? The safest place we can be is in the center of God's will. The safest place we can be is in the center of God's will. No matter how big and powerful your empire, your culture, your wealth seem, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. That's the point of Babel. This is God's way of security. Just follow me. You might not feel safe, but I will see you through and give you an inheritance that cannot be taken away. That's the implication here. 
that security comes actually, here's the ironic thing, it actually comes from leaning in to the discomfort of obedience. Dis, of obedience. obedience is uncomfortable, isn't it? Obedience is scary because it takes faith. If obedience was sight, it would be easy. That makes sense, God. That's exactly what I should do in this situation. High five. We agree. That's not obedience. God says, I have a future. Would you trust me? And so we have the way of Babel to get security, which is our own understanding and God's way of getting security. Our way says, stay. God's way often says, go. Go across the street. Go across the city. Maybe go across the earth. Go to somewhere new. Our way says, surround myself with people from my cultural background and political persuasion who think exactly like I do. And I'll feel secure. God says, you're a foreigner in this world. You have no home in any earthly culture. You're going to feel out of step, and so I'm going to call you to people who are different than you to serve them and love you, even if they dislike you. Our way says, hoard resources, consolidate power. God's way says, be generous, give away your money, share power. So which way is safe? Which way is ultimately safe? See, the reality is we have no lasting city here. And anything we cling to, any babble we try to build, God will disperse it and scatter it. And here's the irony, right, family? Our route to security is to cling to things, to protect them, maybe to hide in our own tribe, to find people who agree with us on everything when God calls us out into the world to take risks for him. Here's the truth about security. The minute you try to cling to things in this world, you will be paralyzed by the fear of losing them. We have no lasting city here. The minute I fixate on building wealth and make that, what am I most concerned about? The minute I'm, I'm fixated on, okay, I have to live around people like me, who think like me, who agree with me in every way, what do I get way more afraid of? People who disagree. <laughs> and they become this huge boogeyman in my head. If I fixate on my health, what will I live in paralysis of all the time? Getting sick. Whoever tries to save their life, Jesus says, will what? Lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Freedom comes when we have an open hand toward everything and say the only thing I can tightly cling to are the promises of God for the future because every babble is going to crumble. Let me apply this to COVID. Let's make this uncomfortable, okay? Get in your business. I talked about COVID in the wrong way at the beginning. I kept saying, once COVID is over... Once COVID is over, life's going to be great. Once COVID is over, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it was sort of like, Ugh. okay, get it done, 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 right? So we can get back to normal. Y'all, I don't know what normal's going to look like in the future. Maybe this thing's with us for like 15 weeks and disappears. Maybe it's with us for years, 15 years longer. It just keeps flaring up. There's more anxieties. There's more insecurity. Here's what I know for a fact. Something is going to kill you. <laughs> Something's going to kill you. And yes, let's be reasonable. Let's be smart. Let's take measures to protect ourselves and our neighbors. That's great. 
You know what's not great? Thinking that the most important thing every day is to be thinking about COVID. That's idolatry. You don't know how long this thing's going to last, neither do I. It could go up and down and surge. Are you going to live your life like this is the governing principle, whatever you do with that? Yes, be wise, but like people are perishing from sin. And that's not an if, that's a yes, it's happening. There are neighbors God calls you to love and that doesn't change because there's a bad disease. We have to be very wise in differentiating just what is, okay, I want to be safe from this is consuming all of my mental real estate and the way I make every decision and think about everything because then that becomes the governing principle of your life and not the kingdom of God. You don't know how long this thing's going to be here, neither do I. And the challenge for us as the body of Christ is to learn how to keep pressing forward and not act like there's a finish line to this thing and keep thinking about how to be the people of God and not let it run our lives. It's going to be hard. It's going to require wisdom. But, but like in the morning, if you're more concerned about getting COVID news than the good news of Jesus from Scripture, like, y'all, there's a problem. There's a big problem. Because our priorities need to be oriented around this, regardless of whatever age we live in. Okay, that's my rant. Does that, that all make sense? Okay, good. Security our way, security God's way. Second, significance our way versus significance God's way. Babel wants significance. They want security, but they want more than security. They want the glory that only belongs to God. And this gets to the heart of their sin. Look at what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for who? Ourselves. That's why we build big towers and put our names on the top for us. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. This is the only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Tower project canceled. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. See, Babel is not just about humans being safe. It's about humanity trying to establish an identity apart from God that's on parallel with God. Right, they take the latest technology, these bricks, and they use that technology to try to exert godlike powers. That's what humans do with technology. <laughs> Look at this new thing we do. Humanism, we're powerful, we're great, we don't need God anymore. This has been around for millennia. We do that, they build a tower that reaches where? To the heavens. What are they doing? They want to invade God's space. They want to bring God down to their level. They want to be ultimate and build a name and fame for themselves that matches God's. 
They're doing it in rebellion against God, in competition with God. They want God's position, and they are united because they want that name. They want that significance. And now here's the irony, and there's a lot of humor in this passage, right? If y'all don't think the Bible is funny, you haven't been reading, because this is funny. They want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. What, what does God do to see the tower? He has to kind of go like this. This is humor. He's, he's going like, oh, that, yeah, that, the tower, they're, they're built, oh, that little, the children of man, that little tower, right there. This is mockery from the author of Genesis. They think this tower is ascending to God from God's perspective. It's, there it is, right? And, and God goes down and says, they're unified and it's a bad thing. Now, when God says this, he's not saying, oh, no, humans are too powerful. I'm concerned they're threatening my power. No, he's saying humans are too united in sin. And they're going to burn the world down again. <laughs> like they did in the flood. See, here's the problem with human unity. Sin. Humans do the most evil actually when they're all in agreement, right? That kind of greases the skids. We got one language, one culture. We're right. We're most convinced we're right. And when you have a group doing evil, as Martin Luther King said, that's way more powerful than an individual doing evil. It's a force multiplier on evil when groups collectively decide to do something evil. Not only that, C.S. Lewis said, people do the most evil when they're the most convinced they're right. And so you have a situation here where humanity says, we're all in agreement about this, let's go forward. And God says, unless there's some division in humanity, unless there's some distinction in humanity, they're going to run this thing off the rails again. Do you see the destructive power of sin? See, when humans collectively get power and all agree, the thing we haven't lost is sin, and sin can distort that into horrific directions. And you look at all of the evil regimes in history, they were convinced they were doing good. They were convinced this was best for everyone, is for them to be in agreement about the evil they committed. And you look at wherever the state increases and gets absolute power, do you know what they don't like? Religion. They don't like people believing in God because it's a threat to their sovereignty and they try to stamp it out. God doesn't want to see sin reach its full human potential. That's what Babel is about. That nothing will be impossible for them. If they are unified and evil, they will do things that will destroy the world again. So he disperses them. He confuses their language. And the people scatter. Now, that is a judgment, but it's a merciful judgment, isn't it? Because God uses the conflict of the nations and the tension of the nations to actually function as a check and balance on human society so that it's hard for humans to get together and agree and destroy everything. Does that make sense? And it fulfills God's original intention to go into all the world and create cultures. Here's the great irony of the story. They wanted a name for themselves that would endure. And God gives the city the name what? Babel. This is funny. Told you the Bible's funny. In Akkadian, do you know what Babel means? The gateway of the gods. 
That's a good name for a city, right? The gateway of the gods. That's how the Babylonians viewed Babel. Do you know what Babel sounds like in Hebrew? Confusion. The Babylonians said, we're building a gateway to the gods. God says, y'all are confused. And, and so Babel, right? We talk about babbling now. It's just indistinguishable language. It shows the foolishness of trying to build a name for ourselves, of glorifying ourselves instead of glorifying God. Here's the amazing thing, though. God knows that our way of significance is a dead end, and yet he wants to give us significance. He wants to give us a name. Look at the story of Abraham. When he calls Abraham, what does he say? I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. We want significance. We want something that endures. And when God calls Abraham, he says, I am going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a legacy that lasts. But what is Abraham's legacy? It's trusting in God. It's submitting to God's purposes. It's it's being obedient to God so God can work his redemptive plan for the renown of God. And that's why Abraham's name endures. That's why we talk about Abraham today. And, you know, Babel, we talk about it with scorn. Because only what is done for the sake of God's name endures. He gives us a name. He gives us a place in his family. He gives us an identity, but it's serving his purposes. Does that make sense? The implication is this. The significance comes from living for the honor of God's name. That's the only way to get a name. Every monument you build in your life is going to erode and collapse. Only what you do for the kingdom of God will endure. Your empire, your business, your house, your wealth, moth and rust, destroy it all. Like history is just not kind to most people, right? <laughs> history goes on. You feel, oh, that person everybody liked, they're actually a jerk, right? That's, that's like almost everybody in history. All this monument building and all of these empires that go, we are the eternal empire. We will settle the world. We will create peace. And we look back and go, you were foolish. And someday people will look back at the empires of our day and go, you were fools for thinking that. Only what is done for the kingdom of God lasts. So whose name are you living for? Whose kingdom values are you living for every day? That's the significance. Now, I want to end with this because here's the tension in this text that only gets resolved with Jesus. This is the tension. God divides the nations, and because of the distinctions between nations, those become divisions, don't they? The the difference in language and culture, rather than being a blessing, it's a cause of unending enmity in the world, isn't it? And that serves as a check and a balance It keeps humanity from uniting against God. But the tension we have to ask is, how is God going to take all of these diverse languages and these diverse cultures, how is he going to reconcile that into one common human family where we can actually experience the unity he wants? That's the tension, isn't it? We see the diversity. How do we get unity? And it only comes with the gospel. 
It only comes when Jesus comes because Jesus comes and dies to reconcile us all to God and in reconciling us all to God, you know who he reconciles us to? Each other. Into the same family with the same spirit of God dwelling in you and me, which means we share that one blood in Christ. We share one spirit that allows us to know each other and love each other and see our differences not as a threat but as a beautiful gift from God that actually magnifies the power of his glory and the diverse splendor of who he is. As we learn to live in unity with each other, even though we're different, only Jesus can bring that about. And that's the beauty of what happens in Acts 2, because you know what you see in Acts 2? When the church is founded, you see Babel reversed. God flips the whole thing on his head. Remember what happens in Acts 2 when the Spirit falls on the church? All of these Jews are preaching in their own language their own language. And the people around them are gathered, it says, from every nation under earth. And if you look, it's all those nations in the table of nations. All these Jews from all over the known world gather in Jerusalem. And what does it say? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's Genesis 10. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What does Jesus Christ do? He gives us the Holy Spirit that unifies the church. So despite our diversity, we understand each other. We have a common gospel language that we all speak. We have common kingdom values that we all live for. It doesn't eradicate culture. It actually redeems cultures and brings us into one unified tribe of the kingdom of God. Only Jesus can create this kind of unity because human unity of sin is always accomplished through external coercion. It's always the power of the empire that creates the unity. You look at Greece and how they Hellenized their people and, and forced Jews to speak Greek and take on Greek customs. Are the Romans who ruled with an iron fist and forced their system of law? Are you look at our own country and Europeans who displaced and oppressed native peoples and enslaved Africans and did these things? It's a forced unity based on oppression to create a false harmony. That's Babel. Only Jesus works not through external coercion, but internal conversion. To change the human heart so that I see you, even if you look nothing like me, your background is different, say the spirit who dwells in me dwells in you. So you're my family, and we might see things way differently on some areas. But that gives me the ability to come and listen to you without my own presumptions or having to, to, to prove my point or insist on my own way, but listen and understand and weep and rejoice because I believe that Jesus died to bring us together. And, and family, like, I am despairing of any human solution to unity and diversity. I despair of it in the church. That, that there's going to be some gimmick or strategy that gets people from different cultures and races and ethnicities to get along. But I know this, Jesus wants it. In fact, Jesus died to grasp it. And that's what causes me to keep learning, to keep listening to people who are very different than me, 
to keep humbling myself and engaging people who I wouldn't naturally engage with in the body of Christ because we're going to be together forever. And I'm just confident that Jesus is going to get his way. And he's going to bring it about. So don't grow weary in that. Satan wants nothing more than to tear the church along those lines, but Jesus will redeem it as his family, one blood, where we all speak a common gospel language. And if you want to be part of that family, you'd pray something like this. Let's pray. Jesus, I see the damage sin has caused, how the peoples of the world have divided from the beginning. Thank you for dying for my sin to bring me into your family, to rise from the dead, to purify a people who have your spirit. I trust in you. I want to be part of that family. I turn from my sin. Help me to follow you and love my newfound brothers and sisters in the faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you will redeem all. I pray in your name. Amen.